Welcome to the Archive Room Podcast. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Fastamai, I'm Judith Lay, and I'm very pleased to find you waiting for me at the door to the Archive Room, the place where we keep stories of island life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. So, come on in. Sit down and make yourself comfortable, and let's listen to this week's selection. This week, I'm looking at the shelf marked teaching. But like everyone we meet in the archive room, there's never just one strand to any life. And the late David Collister was just so skilled at putting his guests at ease and asking just the right questions to unlock all the best memories. Later in the programme, we'll hear how holidays in Ramsey eventually shaped the adult life of Laurie Davis. And we'll hear about a life-changing moment for newborn baby Jean Corkish, and how the outbreak of war led her to an unexpected experience. But first, let's meet Irene Shimon, telling David Collister the fascinating story of her parents. This conversation was recorded about 20 years ago, but Irene's story takes us back to the years of the First World War. Well, with all this talk about Baghdad and Iraq and, and this sort of thing, now it's bringing back my mother very, very clearly to me because I was the first child and she used to tell us, tell lots of stories about when she was a refugee in the First World War when they were literally running away from the Kurds in 1917. Really? Where was your mother born then? In Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. in northwest Iran, Persia. And they were Christians, the Assyrians, and they were being persecuted by the Kurds. Now, up till 1917, they were protected by the Russian army. But in 1917, the Russian Revolution started and the troops were withdrawn. So that left the Assyrians at the mercy of the Kurds. So after a bit, they decided the only thing they could do was leave, which they did. So thousands and thousands of them all took to the road. They couldn't go east because of the Russian Revolution, so they turned west. And they trekked just on on the road for months, and they ended up near Baghdad, what was then Mesopotamia, Mm. which is now Iraq. And the British army were there, and they set up this huge refugees camp for them, and they were housed there. Now, my father was there. His war took him to Gallipoli and then to the Middle East. And he was there with the army administering this camp, and that's where they met. They lived in these tents for four years. Now, when the war ended, of course, the British had to resettle everybody. Now, quite a number of them went back to Iran, Tehran. A large number of them stayed in the Baghdad area, and a great number went to the United States. This was the early 20s when everybody was going Mm. to the United States. And my mother's immediate family went to the United States because she had two brothers already there in New Jersey, so Mm. they went there. But my mother, by this time, had met my father and they were going to get married. So they got married in Mosul in 1922, I think. And I think my father had some idea of staying there, but whatever happened, it didn't work out, and he was coming back to the Isle of Man. What had he done before the war then? Well, he was a student. Yes. He, He became, he was a student at Chester College, 
And as soon as he was able, he trained to teach. Mm. He was born in South Africa, by the way, but that's another story. (laughs) As soon as he was able, he joined the 2nd Cheshire Regiment. And he joined them just after Gallipoli. So that was it. So then he was sent to Messpot, as Mm. they used to call it. So he was a trained teacher. So he came back here, and as I said, he went to the Lua School, Mm. and I was born there. The the Lua's not too far from Ramsey, is it? Just outside Ramsey. And uh, I was born there, and he was the headmaster of that little school. And then shortly after, he was moved to Cronky Voddy, where I grew up. And I always say that had my mother been, say, brought into a street in a town or a city, she'd have been incredibly lonely. But in somewhere like Cronky Voddy, the farmer's wives were wonderful. They took her to their hearts and she had a wonderful time there. They were really lovely. And there was a lot of social life in those small communities Mm. anyway. So after Cronky Voddy, we went to Jerby to school there. And from Jerby, I went to Ramsey Grammar School on the school bus for four years. Right. And then in 1937, the war was imminent and they were looking for places for airfields and that kind of thing. So this airfield was going to be up in the north of the island and, of course, it took in Jerby School. Mm. So the school was going to be closed. And so, again... My father was moved to Douglas and he, he went to Murray's Road School where he worked until he retired. We're listening to David Collister talking with Irene Shimin and he's wondering now if Irene's father's profession as a teacher influenced her own choice of career when the time came for her to leave Ramsey Grammar. In all my early life, our house, the schoolhouse, was joined onto the school, the school buildings. Mm. Mm. So all my life I've been associated with schools yeah. and I think it probably was that because it never entered my head to do anything else. So how did you go on to get teacher qualifications? I went to Liverpool and I got my qualifications there. Then as I say it was just after the war. I finished in 1945 because mm-hmm. I started teaching in a school in Liverpool and in, in Liverpool, they started in the August, the term, and, and the very second day we were there, Japan mm. came out of the war, so we all had a holiday, and victory parades and all that kind of thing. I was very happy in Liverpool. Most of the teaching jobs in Liverpool were waiting for their men to come back. Uh. You know, their job were being kept for them. Mm. So we were really filling in. But then I was here on a, at home for the summer, And I met a girl whom I know very well in Strand Street, and she worked in the education office. And she said, oh, she said, there's a job that would just suit you. She told me about it. And it was a lady, somebody who'd accepted a job at Balakameen and had given back notice, wasn't coming. Hmm. Now, this was sort of August, you see, and they were hoping to start in September. So I went up to see Miss Naylor. And never looked back, that was it. Let's just make it clear who Miss Naylor is for people who don't know. I can't imagine anybody not knowing who Miss Naylor was. (laughs) Miss Naylor was the headmistress of the girls' high school and she was an extremely old-school, strict headmistress. You know, there was no messing with Miss Naylor. Did she take lessons herself as well? Yes, she taught French. 
She had everybody literally terrified of her, even us. <laughs> even us. So as I say, I got this job then, and I went up to Balakameen. And I was at Balakameen for a year. Mm. Comprehensive education was just starting then. Yes. And we had nothing. There was no, you know, very little in the way of equipment, of books, and even to write on. Yeah. The Navy left behind hundreds or thousands of these naval message pads. And we used those for years, these naval <laughs> message pads. You'd I'd have t- a cane in your hand, would you? No, no, I never had a cane in my life. You haven't? No. When I first started teaching boys, a lot of them were far bigger than me, so I had to say to this lad, sit down so I can thump you. <laughs> <laughs> So, controlling a class then? We all became great friends. And I don't think to just skip on to the girls' venture corps, it would have been such a success if uh, they'd all hated me because they said, good Lord, if she thinks I'm going down there in my time off, yeah. you know, have another think of yeah. But no, no. The girls' venture corps and lots of other stories from Irene Shimmin's busy life will be something that we'll come back to in another programme, because now it's time to meet Laurie Davis, well known on the island as a teacher and musician. Laurie was born in Wallasey in 1915, and in this conversation, recorded when Laurie was 88, he shares some early childhood memories with David Collister. I first came when I was three years old. And my family tell me that in my pushchair I was pushed across the Sulby River where the White Bridge is and carried across by some Austrian prisoners of war to the great consternation of my mother. But we always had our summer holidays in Ramsey. There were two direct boats a week from Liverpool to Ramsey Pier. I remember coming over on the paddle boat to the Mona's Queen. Mm. And... No problems over the luggage because you paid in Liverpool or Wallasey half a crown to the steam packing company and a van came, collected your case and when you got to Ramsey it was probably on the same boat as you were and it was delivered just after you got to your boarding house. Well, I fell in love with Ramsey and we had our holidays there year after year after year and meantime I did a degree at Liverpool University and all my life the only thing I wanted to do was to teach. Yes. Just going back to Ramsey, uh, what did you do? I mean, how did you fill in your time in Ramsey? Well, my father spent his time, uh, his mornings, on the bowling green at Moorock Promenade, mm. and my mother sat on the beach doing knitting and things, and I dug sandcastles and the like in yes. the morning. Then we went out in the afternoon down various glens, we usually walked there, then came back on the electric railway oh, or, yeah. or Joe's yeah. bus, whichever happened to be more convenient. And when my if my father won when he was playing bowls in the morning, I got a bottle of ginger beer too. Down with ginger beer, oh, a proper celebration. <laughs> and uh, sometimes if the weather wasn't too good, we'd have afternoon tea in the Singley Cafe, which is, I think, a dressmaker shop now. Well, I so say I eventually qualified as a fully accredited teacher, a certified teacher, and uh, I got a job, first of all, in Liverpool, then in Wallasey, which was much handy because I could get to school on my bike. Crossing the Mersey on a bike wasn't uh, encouraged in those days. (laughs) And eventually the war came, and I was called into the army, to the artillery, 
and I started my military career in Scarborough on the 20th of June 1940. And in the course of my moving from one place to another, I came across Arthur Luft, Beamster mm. Luft. Yeah. He was Bombardier Luft in those days, and we became very good friends and still are. Yeah. Eventually, uh, I moved down to the south of England. and Back to teaching? No, 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 I was still in the army. Still right. in, I was defending the south coast of England from the Germans. Not single-handed, though. They must have known because <laughs> they never came. And I got a letter from the university. You've got a science degree. Are you using any of it in your career? And I wrote back and said no. So a couple of days later, a letter came to the battery office saying that Bombardier L.K. Davis would report forthwith to the forthwith to the war office with a view to his training as a radar maintenance officer. So I departed there and then went on a long course at the radio training school, which was somewhere between Richmond and Kingston-on-Thames. Mm-hmm. And it was there I met the girl who eventually became my wife. From there I was not sent to look after any equipment, I should have been looking after the radar attached to searchlights, but the Scharnhorst and Nice now, two German battleships, had managed to get through the channel, and there was a big push on radar and people to service it, and I was sent to Swansea Technical College to train radio mechanics. After that, I went to a continent, uh, France, and then... Belgium and then Holland and finally finished up at a midget submarine factory in Wilmshaven. Were you still dealing with radar all this time then? Well, I was with what's called a light aid detachment and we did sort of on-the-spot maintenance for anything mechanical, Mm. motors, small arms and radar. Radar was relatively new when you first went to it then was it oh it was yes and the trouble was when i went to swansea to train radio mechanics the civilian staff did the basic training in radio and i had to do the last four weeks which was on the secret stuff yeah well normally if you're doing something new you get a textbook and see what it's about yeah there weren't any textbooks it was all secret (laughs) so i had to work late into the night finding stories to explain things that were happening yes but after two or three courses i was able to say with some confidence now any questions Mm. yes anyway the war was over and i went back to teaching and my ambition was to teach in ramsey grammar school but uh, nobody would leave however one saturday evening i went down to the library in wallace to change our books and i just casually looked at the Times Educational Supplement, which is the teacher's trade journal. Mm. And there, Ramsey Grammar School wanted somebody to come and teach physics. That was just for you then? That was for me, yes. So I went home and talked about this with my wife, who coming from London didn't know anything at all about the Isle of Man. Mm. So she said, well, if you think it's all right, you, you get an application form. So I did, sent it off and got a letter back thanking me very much, but that post had been filled. Uh. Because somebody teaching in the boys' high school, his wife had a house at Lizaire, and he wanted to move there. Mm. This leaves a vacancy at the boys' high school, 
and there is also in the vacancy at the girls high school which could be filled by a man that was at the bottom of the page like yeah, an insurance right, right. policy <laughs> are you still interested so i said yes and came for an interview on the friday before the Whitbank holiday of 1947 well the four of us were called for an interview the first one to go in beautifully dressed uh, black alpaca jacket, pinstripe trousers and all the rest of it, he went in. Well, normally, you come back again to the waiting room, but he disappeared. Mm-hmm. Disappeared. Second fellow went in. He came back looking a bit shell-shocked. He said, well, ask him here about teaching physics to girls. <laughs> well, I had no time to question him because it was my turn to go in. Great big horseshoe with me at the focal point. And we talked, first of all, uh, what the crossing had been like. This, I imagine, was to make sure I could talk in an understandable way. <laughs> and then we got on to teaching physics. And then we got on to teaching physics to girls. Yes. And I said, well, just hang about a bit. I've applied for a post at the boys' high school. Why are we talking about teaching physics to girls? Well, didn't we tell you? Tell me what? Oh, that post has been filled. Well, the first fellow who went in, he was an old boy of the school. They knew what they were getting, fair enough. Mm -hmm. I was just a name on a piece of paper. (laughs) So they said, well, would you be interested in the girls' high school? I said, yes. And if it's any help, when I was doing my school practice, uh, I was doing music all the time as at the university. You could do if you were going to teach. And the man in charge taught in four Liverpool schools. And the only day I could go out with him was to a girls' high school. So oh, right. one day a week I taught in a girls' high school. So you had that experience. Yes, yes. so I've had yes. that experience, yes. So, all right. And the headmistress of the school came and congratulated me on being appointed to her school. Right. Mm. And that was just the beginning. Lots more from Laurie Davis in a future programme. I promise you there are some great stories still to come from this fascinating gentleman. Jean Skinner started life as Jean Corkish. Born in 1926, she and her parents and five older brothers lived in Balakilia. There were little cottages before you get up to the mill. Oh, yes. There's only one cottage. There's a holiday cottage now. Uh, there's two. So you, you were born in one of those? Yeah. We were all born in there. Was the mill working at oh, that time? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, uh. yes. And the girls would uh, walk through in the morning, you know, going up to work. The mill girls, and then they would walk back at night and walk into Peel. Some of them had to walk back and forward or up towards Cronkavadi. You know, they all yeah. walked in those days. They did, yes. So you were born in one of those in cottages? In one of those cottages. And I can remember getting told that I was so poorly one Sunday morning that I was put in my cradle and my other brothers had to go to church because my mother made them go to church anyway. David Cannon's father was a preacher, wasn't he? A yes. And they brought him home afterwards and he said, well, there's not much I can do with her. But he said, we'll all kneel and say a prayer. So he'd done a cross on me. Forehead, forehead, yeah. And I picked up and here I am. Wow. But I was at death's door and, and yeah. the boys, my, my five brothers are all dead now. But they remember it in this cradle. Really? And him doing the cross mm. on me. So here I am. So I was sent you in for blessed, some reason. You were then, weren't you? 
Where did you go to school? I uh, went to St John's School. Yeah. I started at St John's and um, my five brothers of me four had gone to St John's School. Mm. And um, we walked up there every day and we always had uh, a little tin of oxo with a little bit of cocoa and a little bit of sugar in. Yeah. We took that for our lunch and a bite. I can't remember what we had. And then they had the kettle in the school on the big fire in the corner. They put water in and you had that for drink. And that was that. I suppose kids would come from miles then, would they? Oh, they used to walk down from the top of Cronkavody and away out there when Cronkavody school closed. Was it just one big classroom? or? No, there were two classrooms at St John's. There was the, the babies first and then there was one class and then the big class. Right. And um, uh, there was a Mr. Armorod, he was a teacher, he was a, he was a, a master teacher, you know, he would, if anything went wrong, the cutty was out and you got a one across the fingers many a time. You yeah, know. that was the cane. The cutty, you called it. Cutty, we called it, yes. <laughs> but he wouldn't be caning the girls, would he? Oh, yes, he would, hand out. Uh-huh. And sometimes, too, if, if you were naughty, I'd, I'd seen it done, he would smack the girls on the back of the legs, you know, yeah. with the cane. Because uh-huh. we didn't have any socks in those days, you see. Cause no. Probably people don't realise, but we didn't have much clothes. No. We only had merely one set of clothes, and that was washed at the weekend and put back on again. You might have had a good frock for Sunday. Yeah. But there was no money in those days. No. None at all. But when we went home at night, there was a big table like this. Just a wooden oh. table. And then uh, there was a little girl up the road from me playing. She used to come and we play. We'd put the old chenille cloth, which was on oh, the table, yes. down one side and a blanket this side. And we'd pretend we were out in the forest somewhere. <laughs> you know, and you played card games and all. It was all good fun. Yeah. There was these things to keep us amused all the time. We were never bored. Well, you'd not have a radio set, would you? Oh, no, no, no. I do remember the first wireless coming at home, and that was from John Brideson over the road, you know, Mm -hmm. at the garage here. Yeah. And he came and and, uh, gave us a a wet battery, I think it was, wasn't it? Yes. And I put it on there and thought we were wireless. (laughs) I heard we were rich then. Jean left St John's and moved to Douglas High School to complete her education and passed her school certificate just after the outbreak of the Second World War. With four of her five brothers away serving in the forces, Jean wanted to do her bit. So, turning her back on school, she headed off to Nokalo to join the Land Army and be trained as a land girl. When I went up on the Saturday morning straight the day after school, I went up and I met the men and the women up there and they gave me a pair of boots, a pair of green socks, a corduroy breeches, a jumper, as I think that's all we had. And from that day on I was back and forward to Nokalo. And then I had another friend from Foxdale, she used to come down and meet me for the half of seven. When rain, hail, snow, blow, you had to go to Nokalo. Did you work at Nokalo then? To start with, but you had to learn to thin turnips and then you had to learn how to dock them. Another week, we would be put on the poultry. You had to go and get the little eggs, and you had to weigh them, and you had to wash them. And you learnt how to clean piggeries out and things like that. (laughs) Delightful. And and then also, you learnt how to do various jobs on the yard up there. Knock Aylo was a bit different from the other farms. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, it was a kind of training farm. It was, yes. It was a job, and you had to do it, and you thought nothing of it. You, You brought your pieces over it every morning with you 
And then you had a rest and had your lunch and then off again. We finished at half past five usually about. When you say bring your pieces over, a lot of people won't understand that today either. <laughs> it's sandwiches, isn't it? Really? Sandwiches. Uh, bread and jam. Bread and jam. <laughs> or bread and scrape, as we used to call it. Because <laughs> it was only March, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Right. That's right. Eventually then, were you sent out to other farms to work? Yes, we were. There was, um, there was a big red wagon come on this yard one day. You, you, you and you. Get in the wagon. You're going off for the day. Well, you never knew where you were going. And I can remember going, and it'd be cold in the morning. And we'd sometimes go right down to the south of the Ing Island, you know, uh, yeah. to do a field of turnips. It hadn't even been grubbed, as we called it, you know, they uh, grub to make them soft. Yeah, yeah. It hadn't even been done. It's a wonder we had fingers left. We, and then they would come back and pick us up at night. What time would you start in the morning? Well, we had to be there for 7.30. Through to what time of night? Five? Five, five to half past. That's long enough for somebody of 16. Though. I think so. Highly rewarded with pay, was it? 15 and sixpence, I think the first wage was. 15 and, and six, that would up. be 75, <laughs> 76 pence. Then it went up to about 17 and sixpence, I think it was. That's for your week. But you that. got a lot of things done for that. You oh, could yeah. go into Douglas by train at night on the tickets. Yeah. Back again. Now, if you went in on the train at night then... Where would you be going to? Well, three or four of us used to go to the palace, the uh, Ballet de Dance, uh, over to Derby Castle. Uh, and you see, those days, by the time we got a couple of years done up there, we were in Douglas, and of course there was a lot of young soldier sailors, only boys, the same age as us, yeah. and they would be in the Pally or somewhere, and we were always friendly with them. And, and then somebody say, it's quarter to 11, well, we'd have to run all the way over to... To get the last train? <laughs> No, things just went on and we were as happy as could be. When we were going to the dances, we used to have a, two or three of our local boys with us and one night we missed the train. From Douglas? And it went at half past 11 in those days. Yeah. We had to walk all the way home. There wasn't a car on the road, you see, no, wasn't there? of course. We had to walk home. Well, we were banned to go then for about a month. We weren't allowed to go. <laughs> it was all good, clean, fun. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And borrowing those words from Jean Skinner, I hope you've thoroughly enjoyed this time in the archive room and that you'll meet me at the door again next week, just after six o'clock. Incidentally, there will be more from Jean in a future programme. And this is Judith Lay saying thank you for listening and wishing you a very good evening. The Nation Station